The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details. Welcome to For the Love of Wine on Fresh FM. I'm your host, Kirsten Rotsgaard. Today's show is called Looking Back, and I've chosen to share highlights from some of the nearly 50 shows that have aired since we launched For the Love of Wine in August 2020. This is a two-part show. The first one aired on May 1st and focused on some of the many women in the New Zealand wine industry. In this, the second edition, I've chosen to replay fun, informative and even educational snippets from winemakers all over the country. First up is Duncan Forsyth from Mount Edward in central Otago. About a decade ago, he needed to sell more wine and came up with the slogan, Jesus drank Riesling to boost sales. The story is I probably in about 2011, and that was a tricky time for the wine industry. It was um, um, uh, just after the GFC, and we were trying to make our way in the world of wine as Mount Edward, and really just sort of starting to put our feet out there and try and do a few things. And it was pretty tricky. There was it was really tough economically. Uh, there were a lot of wineries, uh, way too many, and um, to try and make make yourself known and get yourself out there was um, pretty pretty tough. Here in central Otago, I think um, we had gone from 37 wineries in 2003 to 137 by 2011. Wow. Yeah, crazy. Um, and so everyone was trying to sell Pinot Noir, which is what most people make here, and mm-hmm. it's something like 85%. Yeah, we'll get back to that. And we decided to back, uh, back the underdog and put ourselves out there. And we started this campaign called Summer of Riesling. I started it with a friend of mine, Angelo Clifford. Um, and um, basically, we went around. We didn't, didn't have any money, but we had our brains. And we printed all these T-shirts. One of them was uh, Jesus uh, Drank Riesling. Um, there were a couple of variations on that. And there was a whole host of others, like the Age of Riesling, um, uh, the voice of Riesling, all these sort of Riesling-esque uh, T-shirts, and we got uh, ten thousand uh, temporary tattoos, and we rent, went around all the restaurants we knew, and convinced bar staff to wear these tattoos and to pour our Rieslings and to wear our T-shirts, and that's uh, that. That's where it started, really. Right. So Riesling for you, because I've had your Rieslings from Mount Edward; they are absolutely delightful. So, is Riesling for you a bit of an obsession? Oh, look, I think it probably was. Um, like all obsessions, uh, they come and go. Um, well, for me, they do at least. Um, look, I love it. I think it's um, so it's one of the most uh, accessible wines. It can be a sorbet. It can be something that cleans you out. It used to be called the drink of kings. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's such good value. Yeah. Um, and it can come dry, sweet. Um, as most people think it's sweet, probably due to all the crappy wines of the 70s that were called Hock or Moselle or Riesling, unfortunately. Yeah. What's your favourite Riesling in terms of the style? How do you want it to be to be perfect? Uh, for me, I think probably I like 
wines that are lower in alcohol, about 10%. Um, it's got a little bit of sweetness to it, but a lot of acidity. So it finishes dry, and it, and it is, like a, as I said, like a sorbet. It's like a, something that just cleans you out. So light, a little bit of sweetness. I think everybody likes a bit of sweetness in their lives. Talk about sweetness. Another fabulous Riesling producer is the iconic family business Pegasus Bay, located in Wipra, north of Christchurch, a region known especially for Pinot Noir and Riesling. Marketing manager Edward Donaldson from Pegasus Bay Winery elaborates on the several different styles of Riesling they produce. What we've found is it's quite distinctive and unique North Canterbury um, character for Riesling, which is this um, kind of spicy orange zesty character um, or mandarin spray as some people call it when you like break up the mandarin and you get that kind of oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, spray um, and um, yeah what we found is the longer we hang the fruit out the more of that that, that intense regional character we get which we really love and we're, the character that we think is worth celebrating um, and so that's another one part of the reason that we, we hang the fruit out um, as long as we do, um, we make a, one of the Main Divide labels, so that's just um, Main Divide Racing, which um, Main Divide, we, uh, traditionally was fruit that we bought from growers, uh, but we're now growing a lot of the fruit ourselves in, a, in another vineyard, Main Divide vineyard that we planted about 12 years ago, and that's um, the earliest pick of the different racing styles we make, but it's still not early pick, it's still probably as late or later than most people are picking um, in the region, uh, and then we we have the Pegasus Bay Estate Riesling, which is sort of made um, in a similar style to the Main Divide, but it's, um, it's harvested a little bit later, um, and it's from the home vineyard, uh, so it's sort of older vines and tend to be a bit lower cropping as well, so um, it's a bit more intensity there. Both of those two wines are sort of off-dry styles, so they're all uh, fermented in stainless steel. Um, the fermentation's a very cool fermentation, and then the fermentation stopped where that... Um, just where we think everything's in balance with a you know a little bit of residual sweetness, plenty of acidity, and, and that sort of fruit concentration and alcohol where everything's in, in balance there. So yeah, they sit around about that sort of twenty grams of residual, or they they can go up and down by you know five or ten grams depending on the right. depending on the vintage. Um, and then we have the um, the Bel Canto, which is our dry or oh, the driest style of resin that we make. Um, the current vintage is. Up around the four, four and a half gram mark. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that's quite a really distinctive wine. It's often the wine I show people if they say, can you show us one wine from your estate? Because it's just so distinctive and unique. Um, there's no one that I'm aware of making racing on this side of the world in this style that's harvesting as late as we are and fermenting as dry. Um, and again, with that really intense regional character. So it's picked really, really ripe with a decent amount of botrytis. Mm. Um, we only make that those reserve wines in certain years where we, the, the conditions are right, and so obviously it had the potential to be really quite a sweet wine, but we've fermented it, you know, um, into that sort of dry category. So always under eight grams for Bel Canto, but it's, these days it's getting a bit drier and drier. So it's a very big, rich, quite a powerful dry style of, of Riesling, and then there's Encore, which is the most concentrated of the Riesling styles that we make, um, and that one's. Um, not made very often. It's only made when, yeah, we can we can get a um, with basically close to 100% botrytis 
and we go through and we just cut out the punch that has betrayed, part of the punch that has betrayed us. Sometimes it's full bunches, sometimes it's part bunches, even in cases it's individual berries. I'm drooling. I just want a glass of Riesling right now. <laughs> hey, personally, yeah. I really love Riesling, but it seems it can actually be a hard sell uh, here in New Zealand. How do you manage to sell your Rieslings? Yeah, it's a bit of an odd one, all down to the marketing, of course. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> um, it, it's an odd one, really. It's, it, I mean, it only represents, I think, something like 2 or 3% of the you know, of the category in New Zealand for wine sales, so it's tiny. But I think we've sort of developed a name for it. I think when people think of racing in New Zealand, you know, our name sort of comes up. And so even though it's a relatively small market, I think we've we've, we've sort of developed, I guess, a, a good share of, of that market. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think making, you know, making racing for as long as we, we have um, and making quite a range of different styles um, and... I also think making a really distinctive style that's quite different. I think a lot of people, you know, that taste our racing would be able to pick it up in a blind tasting as being Pegasus Bay. So, you know, it is quite a distinctive style. So I think kind of combination of those things. But we, we didn't actually plant Riesling when we first planted the vineyard uh, because people said the same thing. It's basically what, what, you, what you had just said, you know, yeah, and hard. what people had said to Dad, oh, you know, you might love racing, but you won't be able to sell it. And Mum managed to convince Dad to plant a a few rows of racing and, and smart cookie, said, you know, we'll smart just, cookie, you yeah, absolutely. And you know, we'll just drink it, um, drink it ourselves if we can't sell it. And Matt made the first wine from it, and um, lo and behold, people really seemed to like it. And uh, so we increased the plantings and increased, and yeah, now it's our largest planted white varietal and our biggest production white wines. In Marlborough, winemaker Kevin Judd runs his winery Grey Wacky, which he set up after being the chief winemaker at Cloudy Bay in Marlborough for 25 years. We had a chat about Sauvignon Blanc, New Zealand's most grown grape varietal. Sauvignon Blanc, whether we like it or not, is the grape variety that um, people expect me to produce. <laughs> it's like... It's, Damn, it's, you want to produce something else, but you've got to do this one. Yeah, well, and it's the grape variety that's, that's Marlborough's known for. So no matter what we want to sell, I mean, I could make a lot more Chardonnay, I could make a lot more Pinot Gris, I could, you know, I could, I could do whatever I wanted, but the fact is that people want to buy Sauvignon Blanc from me and from Greywacky and from Marlborough. <laughs> so, so, so the two Sauvignon Blancs actually represent about um, 75% of our production. But they're different styles. Can you elaborate yeah, on that? Sure. Uh, the, we make two very, very different styles of Sauvignon Blanc. So the the main, the most, the biggest part of our production is Grey Wacky Sauvignon Blanc, and that is what we like to call our interpretation of the classic Marlborough style. So it's the fruity, new world winemaking, it's um, cultured yeast, fermented cool, it's, it's all about retaining fruit flavour. And we say our interpretation because I don't like aggressive Sauvignon Blanc. I like ripe, fleshy, um, not too acidic, not too in your face, not, you know, it's a sort of, I, I like to try and I like to think that we make a style of Sauvignon Blanc that's a, a drink a bottle rather than you know half a glass and get fed up with it sort of wine. So so we we work with very open canopies in the vineyard, very try and get nice ripe nice levels of ripeness, not too much grassiness, and um, try and keep the acid down so it doesn't you know. It's, I think the older I get, the less I like as, acidic uh, wine. So trying to make a nice rounded fleshy style, but it, and a little bit of wild yeast but primarily cultured yeast. It, it's roughly what people expect when they buy a bottle of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, but it's a sort of a turned, a slightly turned down volume Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc that's more riper and not green and acidic.
And the other wine we call Wild Sauvignon. So it's grey wacky Wild Sauvignon, but it's 100% Sauvignon Blanc. But it is not what you expect when you buy a bottle of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. It's, it's um, Some people call it a Chardonnay drink as Sauvignon Blanc. I would agree with that. Uh, it's one of the wines that I really, really love, um, for sure. Yep. It's a great Sauvignon If I could only make one Sauvignon Blanc and the bank manager had nothing to say for uh, about it, um, that's the wine I would make, the wild Sauvignon. It's the style I prefer. So what's the percentage of the two? You make 80%? Uh, of uh, we make about something like 7% of the Grey Wacky Sauvignon Blanc. And 30 and, and, of the wine. And it depends on which com- country you're selling it to. And in the US, which was one of our biggest and two biggest markets, we sell almost entirely Grey Wacky Sauvignon Blanc. But in, in Norway, we sell far more wild Sauvignon than we sell Sauvignon Blanc. You well, know. they're a bit wild in Norway, the old <laughs> Vikings, I guess. Yeah. So do you have a, a favourite grape uh, varietal yourself that you prefer to drink? If I could only make one wine, um, once again, the bank manager wasn't involved, probably make Chardonnay. And why is that? Well, it's just, it's just a classic grape. It's a very versatile grape. The sort of grape, well, and the sort of wine that we t- traditionally make from Chardonnay is a wine, it's not just about fruit. It's a, you know, there's so many winemaking influences. And, that, and that's also what I love about the wild Sauvignon, is that the wild Sauvignon is it's wild yeast. It's malolactic. It's barrels. It's yeast leaves, aging. It's um, solid fermentation. There's so many parameters that you use to create the wine. And it's, it's so much more individual and, and it has so much more personality than a, you know, a, a tutti-frutti modern brand, you know, new world style. And you wish you could make more and sell more because I think you only sell about 1% of Chardonnay overseas and you, you're you saying if only people knew how amazing it is. Well, in America, that's the tr- that's the actually exactly true. And I think one of the issues is that it's um, – when we can't we, – we, we, sh- we need to be thankful for the fact that we're famous for Sauvignon Blanc. But uh, at the other on the other side of the equation, um, it, the Sauvignon Blanc story is so compelling and so strong that in a place like America where you're – Wines are quite often sold by distribution companies that have huge portfolios. They've got so many wines in their portfolio, they can't know them all. And if they're talking to a restaurateur and they're talking about Chardonnay, chances are they're talking about California or France or something. Then probably some of those sales guys, sales women, have probably never even tried a New Zealand Chardonnay. What can you do to change that? I think we just have to be patient. Yeah, because New Zealand does make some pretty amazing Chardonnays. Yeah. Well, and our, the Grey Wacky Chardonnay gets higher points than the Sauvignon Blancs in the American wine publications, but it doesn't help the sales, unfortunately. Well, fingers crossed that'll change. Winemaker James Healy, who was part of Cloudy Bay's winemaking team back in the 1990s and later on founded Dog Point Winery with Ivan Sutherland, is also a big fan of Chardonnay and now makes it under his own small Tasman-based label called Abel. The way we make it is um, what I've learned over the years. And um, also, it's, my, I think, my, personally, my favourite white wine. A, a Chardonnay is made in a Chablis style, where the wood is not so much the forefront, but you've got a nice b- brightness of fruit, brightness of palate, energy on the palate. And uh, the wood is very much in the background, and so that's the style that we've pursued with uh, Abel. It seems to me that that is probably your favourite grape varietal. Honestly, I think it is my favourite grape varietal. I, I um, Generally, a red wine is supposed to be your favourite, but 
according <laughs> to who? <laughs> oh, exactly. I think according to people that don't really know that much about wine. But yeah, Chardonnay. I think it's just it it such it's such a brilliant grape. I mean, it's so malleable. You can do. It doesn't grow massively successfully everywhere, e- even though um, it's often talked about as being planted all over the world and makes great wine everywhere. I don't really agree with that. I think it shines more in, in where the climate is a little bit cooler or you can manage things to, to, to make the grape appear like it's been grow, grown in a cooler climate. And certainly uh, over here in, in, in Tasman, with some of the soils and, and uh, I mean, it's just a brilliant place to grow Chardonnay. Yeah, because with Abel, this new label of your daughter and son-in-law that you are sort of involved in, sort of, you're in the the Mootry Hills, so in the clay. Yes, yes, in the Mootry clay. Yeah, it's an orange clay. It's quite quite citrusy. It's different. We're all all of the Chardonnay that we made at Dog Point, the all of the grapes are in uh, Southern Valleys clay. The clay's much paler, and um, you get. I've noticed over the years that sort of soil over there that you definitely get an incredibly strong grapefruit character that comes into the wine but I'm seeing here now with three vintages under our belts um, I'm noticing that you you do get the citrus this grapefruity citrus character but it's also there's a little bit of stone fruit more like maybe a bit bit of kind of white but really restrained white peach flavor that comes through in it as well so you've got to bear that in mind with how you make the wine I think definitely. We're heading back to Marlborough and we'll focus on one of the region's newcomers, Eva Pemper, who originally came from Croatia. We talked about some of her ancestors who pioneered winemaking in Aotearoa in the 18 and 1900s. Croatians first began arriving uh, here in the 1860s. They were sailors and pioneers and gold miners. And after the gold rush, many of them moved to Northland, attracted by the kauri gum digging. And when that adventure stopped, some of these early Croatians uh, were responsible for starting and establishing the first New Zealand wine industry, mainly in West Auckland and Cumio. So Croatian family names such as Seelag, Nobilo, Soljan, Babbage, Delegate, you know, they still feature amongst the names of New Zealand's well-known wineries. And two of the largest wineries we have, Brancut Estate and Villa Maria Estates, they were established in the mid-20th century, respectively, by Croatian New Zealanders Ivan Jukic and now Sir George Fistonic. So there's a lot of Croatian history and experience here already. How does that make you feel, Eva, following in the footsteps of these wine pioneers? Oh, my God. Your story just also gave me some goosebumps now. <laughs> <laughs> so you know how I feel about it. I feel so proud. And it's basically part of my brand story is, together with you know continuing my family legacy, is being like a new generation of Croatian winemakers. Um, and it means so much. I didn't really know how big the impact was before I came to New Zealand. I knew there was quite a few settlers coming to New Zealand and Australia from Croatia and from Eastern Europe. Yeah. But I never had, uh, I didn't have a clue that this was such a massive impact on on New Zealand viticulture and wine industry by the Croatians. Mm-hmm. So I feel so super proud and I always you know, try to, uh, you know, go and visit them and make contact. And basically, I've been to Kumiu and Henderson just two months ago was my first time where I actually managed to go and I visited the Babich family there and went to see the winery because I'm actually making my wine 
at the Babich Winery here in Marlborough oh, because right. I feel I feel that kind of contact, connection and the authenticity of what I'm actually my brand story is that I'm also making wine in uh, one of the oldest you know winemaking families with one of the oldest winemaking families in New Zealand is is is, is gives another level of you know showing how proud I am of what they have actually done yeah. uh, in the last hundred odd years so. Um, yeah, it definitely means so much. And um, uh, because I have lived, you know, 29 years of my life in Croatia, it's so close to me. I understand that some of them are already second, third generation. Yeah. But it's still, you know, I am so, you know, invested in that. And I just, I think the connection for me is so big. And I, I, I will never be able to, you know, um, for that to disappear, if you know what I mean. That's mm-hmm. always going to be such a messy part of who I am. Well, it's part of your story, you know, and, and yes. consumers around the world, they love stories uh, when they yes. choose a wine. If there's a good personal story, they, they get more interested, especially if the wine is good as well, you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, so fantastic. Yeah. That's really great. So so with the New Zealand wine industry compared to Croatia, you know, what is it that makes you want to stay here? I guess it's it's the the opportunities it's it's the growth it's very very modern it has a lot of a lot of different people that you're able to you know share your ideas and everything I feel like creation wine is is amazing but it's quite boutique and small family oriented you know um it just kind of uh it's a, it's very it's very different it's very different I feel like here you know, when you find another place on earth that feels like home, that's New Zealand for me in general, not just like the wine industry. Mm-hmm. But I feel like here, here I could actually, you know, like introduce some new things. And, and basically, I also what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to connect a little bit of the old world style winemaking with the new world, you know, fruit and, and uh, everything that the fruit gives us here so we can make wine. Uh, thanks. I think that that's a really really good uh, formula for um, making you know a bit different wines, I guess, or some giving some, some something very special to them that I'm trying to do. Erica Crawford was born in South Africa and is another successful expat here in New Zealand. She's been involved in the wine industry since the mid 90s when she established the Kim Crawford label with her husband Kim Crawford. They sold their business in 2007 and later set up Loveblock Wines in Marlborough. Loveblock, such a romantic name. Erica explains how it came to be. As you know, we, we, refer, we tend to refer to vineyards as blocks. You know, this block A, block B, or yep. this block or that block. And while we developed this, um, we bought some more land in an impossible place. So it's on the southern end of the Wither Hills overlooking the Awateri Valley. So right on top of those hills on um, on the eastern side of the State Highway 1, sort of in that lower Dashwood area. And uh, just the difficulty of the site and developing the vineyard, um, you know, I just kept on writing checks and approving checks and approving money going out. <laughs> and just started referring to it as the love block because it had to be for love, not money. Um, and and right. the name stuck and that's what we call it, yeah. Yeah. So when were you actually allowed to uh, start producing wine um, in your own right and, and selling it under the love block label? 2012. Right. And and from there on, so so your roles are similar to what you did uh, originally with the Kim Crawford label. 
Kim's the winemaker and you do everything else or? Uh, yes, that to an extent. Um, I think we've got a bigger team around us this time um, in the vineyard. So I went and retrained as a viticulturist. So I now have that degree as well on top of all my science degrees. Great. Um, so that's really helped me a lot in the, in the whole process, especially with organics, you know. Um, and we're very strong. We have a strong team down there. And we've just expanded uh, with another five people just so as to cope with, the, you know, um, the pruning and really practicing thoughtful viticulture. So that's really at the heart of everything we do. So instead of, you know, just pruning to get it done, they stand back and look at each vine. So we try to do as much of that as possible. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and is so, there an, an actual winery on the estate? No, there's no actual winery. We still haven't been able to do that. It's, of course, getting more and more difficult to do that because you have issues like effluent management and, you know, it's quite remote where we are. Um, so at the moment, the wine's being made at the Tohu Winery. In, um, in the Arbateri Valley, about five minutes down the road. Yeah, yeah. And they're also mm. organic, I believe. Uh, some of the vineyards, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's, really, it's a really nice relationship, you know, and it's a real warmth in that winery that exists because of, because of the Maori values, of course. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Mm. Um, let's talk about the actual Love Block wines. Um, mm-hmm. They're organic, but which varietals do you focus on? So obviously Sauvignon Blanc is, so we export 98% of what we make. So the thing is, what's most in demand is Sauvignon Blanc. So obviously that's um, a key for for most Marlborough producers, but also for us. Um, We also, of course, make Pinot Gris. We make Pinot Noir out of Central. So you have vineyards in in Bendigo, I think. In Bendigo, Central, that's right. Yeah. So, so just as a matter of clarification, so this time we're not buying any grapes from any growers. So we own all the vineyards. Um, and, and we do that because we want to control the viticulture, to keep the blend consistent, and um, and just to have some longevity and some um, sense of place in that. And then we also, of course, do Gewürztraminer. We do uh, Riesling. And we've just planted a bit of Syrah in Bendigo, as well as this next winter, what's going in at the Love Block Farm is also a bit of Chenin Blanc again. Yeah, okay, so Syrah, that's that's a new thing for Central Otago, to focus on another red other than Pinot Noir. I think that with climate change, we really just have to consider the future. And so it's, it's only a hectare, so we're just putting our toe in the water and see what's happening. Oh, that's exciting, yeah. Mm, really exciting. Another expat in Aotearoa is Frenchman Jean-Christophe from Maison Vauron, an Auckland-based wine merchant. He came on the show in September last year, and we mainly talked about French wine, but Jean-Christophe also elaborated on New Zealand Pinot Noir and the different wine regions, types of terroir. Although we, we are starting to have a, a, a terroir notion, I, I still think that... Um, uh, uh, and I'm talking only Pinot Noir here, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, and that's my my, my humble op- opinion. Um, we we're still very much um, uh, driven by the climatic uh, um, uh, side of the of the terroir because climate is part of the of the terroir. It's not just the dirt that uh, the vines is planting in. Uh, the dirt seems to be uh, pretty. Um, uh, I've got to be careful. Maybe not uh, uh, homogeneous, but but um, it, the, 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 
the climate, I think, plays a very important part for Pinot. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And in New Zealand, uh, if you're looking at Central Otago versus uh, uh, Marlborough, for example, see, I pr- personally, uh, I think Marlborough has got a little bit more scope as a general rule, okay, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that some part of the, some part of the, of Central Otago are producing amazing Pinot, but, but as a whole, I think Marlboro has a, has a wonderful terroir, uh, for, and climate in that case, for Pinots, mm-hmm. okay, uh, and some part of Martin Brew as well, as we all know. Um, uh, but, um, we, we still unsure at this stage where it has the best on what part, what best dirt we've got them we can get the, the best potential mm. does it make sense yeah 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 so there's so there's a, a huge influence by the climate first of all i think mm. uh, more than the terroir at this stage yeah fair although enough. i think that marble terroir is pretty good uh, it's pretty good for uh, for Pinot. Yeah, yeah. It's exciting. Now, you are a very passionate man. I have experienced you during some of your wine tasting events, uh, especially here in Nelson. You know, you just come across this very passionate, wine-loving person. No, so But for you, wine is not just a passion. It's a way of life, according to your website. So how, how, yeah. how can you elaborate on that? Uh, well... First of all, is uh, is part of my diet and should be part of a diet. Okay, and I'm talking in moderation. In moderation, yeah, I was just about yeah. to say. <laughs> in moderation, yeah. it should be part of a diet. Okay, um, it's it's the best vehicle uh, for uh, seduction. Mm-hmm. It's the best vehicle to uh, to make friends. It's a base vehicle to uh, um, keep friends because we're very well to have friends, but you want to keep them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's um, it's it's just it's just one of these things that we should not not have it mm. really. Mm. It's like uh, I don't know. Uh, it's like a. a, a a day without sun, really. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that kind. It's as important as this. I feel. Yeah. I feel. But for you, you only have wine with food. You don't just have a glass of wine in the afternoon. No. 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 It has no. to be. With I food. never. Yeah. I. I. Uh, I come from a family, and you probably will appreciate that in Europe. We. We and in my case, France. We. We don't eat between meals. Mm. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah. Were you yep, born yep. this? Yeah. yeah, I was I was raised like this. Never any meals during meals, any food during meals. So, and then but when you have meal, you sit down, and you have a proper meal. Yeah, and 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 with a meal, you have a little bit of wine. Yeah, mm. with people's very busy lifestyles nowadays, it doesn't always happen that way. Unfortunately, you know. And 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 even in Europe, and you will know, even in Europe, we we're losing that. Yeah, and that's terrible. We began this edition of For the Love of Wine in central Otago and we'll finish there with the interview I did with Felton Rhodes winemaker Blair Walter. Amongst many other fascinating topics, he enlightened me on the principles behind the winery's biodynamic farming style. Well, first and foremost, our focus 
is on um, organic farming and we started on that journey back in 2002 with organics and then very quickly discovered that biodynamics was being widely employed in um, uh, wine growing areas on, on vineyards around the world and as we read into it and talked to, to various growers, we could see that biodynamics just offered um, just that little bit more than and being um, just purely organic. What and is that little bit more? What is that? Well, the, uh, one of the easy ways to um, sort of describe the difference between organics and biodynamics is, um, and, and this is a, you know, a little bit short and, and hard-edged, but organics is... is can often be referred to as um, you know what you're not allowed to be doing in your vineyard, and you know um, you have to not use obviously any synthetic pesticides or herbicides. Um, um, whereas biodynamics is a lot more about what you can be doing with your land, and um, you know involve um, with the you know the, the, the timings of the calendar, the biodynamic calendar, um, the preparations. Um, and all the other steps and conversations that you can be having with your land rather than just being, um, you know, purely organic. So I understand it, that, that you work with the sun and the moon and you're talking about the calendar. So, so can you elaborate a little on that, a bit on that? Yeah, that, um, you know, Steiner proposed, you know, the, the biodynamic calendar that you know, um, talks about um, beneficial timings for doing certain events, um, you know, compost making, compost spreading, um, various other activities in the vineyard assisted by timing with um, the, the calendar. So it's, it's published every year, um, you get these dates, and as you go about your work in the vineyard, you try and work as, as close as possible um, to the biodynamic calendar to have these um, beneficial aspects um, as, as um, you know, different phases of the moon and the ascending phase or descending phase can really affect um, the way that plants, plants grow and, and respond to um, different treatments. Yeah, I know there are even people that might not be a, an organic principle, but like in Marlborough, the Yeelands Winery, he plays music to his vines and says, classical music, and says that has an impact. So they are very sensitive, these vines, aren't they? <laughs> well, look, I, I think um, whether there's a measurable difference or not is really beside the point. Um, you know, biodynamics has, has been tried to be um, scientifically proven, um, and there's, you know, been... Um, struggles to, to say whether there's um, scientifically any, any significant differences or not. But we know is, as farmers and talking to any other biodynamic farmers and you know, looking across the fence at other properties and, um, and tasting the quality of the wines, that there really is something about it um, that you know, the wines have um, just a different X factor about them. There is a myth, which I actually don't think is a myth, but there's something about putting cow dong into... Uh, horns and burying it in the ground. Is that correct? Yes. And yep. what's that about? Uh, well, that's the, the preparation 500. One of the preparations that we, you know, can understand and, 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 and firmly believe that um, uh, there are beneficial aspects to um, 500 applications. So the cow dung is um, collected off our own cows on the property um, and uh, we have now quite a great collection of, of horns from the, the highland cattle that we, we have on the steep hillsides around the, the, the vineyard properties where we can't um, um, farm vines. And so we collect the, the manure and stuff them in the horns and bury them on a certain phase of the moon at the beginning of the winter and then dig them up in the springtime. And the manure is completely fermented inside these horns in the ground. And we take out that um, um, fermented cow manure and then it gets energized into water where you stir um, 
for up to an hour to give the water an energy. And you're making a, um, a potent um, my, microbial brew that you then go and sprinkle out in your vineyard. And it's like an, an, an inoculation of beneficial microorganisms um, that brings you know, greater microbial activity to the soil. Wow, fascinating. Now, you were, uh, Felton Road was among one of the first to be biodynamic in New Zealand, not the first though, that was actually Milton Winery in Gisborne. And James Milton, I understand that he was quite helpful when you were going uh, biodynamic? Yeah, James has been um, an incredible inspiration to uh, not just um, biodynamic wine growers in New Zealand, but um, organic growers um, at, at large, and his efforts uh, up in Gisborne and you know, dating back into the 1980s has been inspiration. He's been hugely helpful, um, you know, coming to visit um, people, allowing people to come visit him to, you know, seek advice and knowledge on, on how best to go about um, practices on their own properties. And also, um, you know, from even a governance point of view of um, uh, being involved in the setup of Organic Wine Growers New Zealand and, you know, the various uh, seminars and field days and things James has been heavily involved in. Yeah, are you disappointed that not more wineries have converted to organics? Because there's about 10 plus percent that are fully organic today. Yeah, it, uh, no, I, you know, look, it's a, a decision that individual properties have to make. Um, I think there's going to be greater and greater pressure in the future as um, chemicals like Roundup um, are going to be banned. I mean, there's already bans in, um, uh, in Europe, um, and it won't be long before it's, it'll be banned in New Zealand and, and other pesticides as well. So, you know, growers uh, are increasingly looking towards um, organic cultivation, and it's uh, not as difficult as, you know, what, what it might um, seem on, on the outset. In central Otago, we have um, close to 25% of the vineyard area under organic and biodynamic cultivation, and that, that's certified. So, um, you know, there's definitely uh, an upswell. On that positive note, this wraps up part two of my two Looking Back shows. I hope you enjoyed them and I thank you for tuning in to For the Love of Wine here on Nelson's Fresh FM. We'll have a short break and I look forward to returning with a brand new show in mid-June. The podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast on Fresh FM, the Top of the South's community access media station with support from New Zealand On Air. The funding of Access Media makes these podcasts possible. To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz.